Good. We are in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. We want to look at verses 1 through 6. Who is greatest in the kingdom? If you can answer that question, we won't have to do our study here. (laughs) Well, that's for sure. Nobody can argue with that. It is Jesus for sure. But uh, as far as us, you know, that's that's the issue here. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Give me grace as, we, as I teach. Help us to have ears to hear uh, what you, by the Holy Spirit, are teaching us here this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. On the overhead, you note the outline. Uh, the theme is Christ the King. As far as Matthew, we have worked our way down to chapter 17 through 20, the instructions of the King. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul exhorted Timothy to be diligent to... Uh, to rightly divide the word of truth and thereby show himself to be an approved worker, an approved worker before God who does not need to be ashamed. This rightly dividing the word of truth is very important. The proper distinctions in Scripture, the faithful expositor works hard to make in a careful way. For example, there is life under the Mosaic code, the Mosaic Law Code, and then there is life under grace. Are we under the Mosaic Law Code today? That's an easy softball question. No. Are we under grace, under a code of grace, under a new covenant of grace? Yes, we are. So we're not under the law. We're under grace. We're under the law of Christ. So there is life prior to the cross and there is life after the cross as we enter into the church age, which is where we are. We live in the church age. Jesus came on the scene with all the credentials of being the coming messianic king prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. His forerunner, John the Baptist, went before him preparing the way by calling the people to repentance. Because the kingdom was at hand, meaning it was about to be presented to Israel on the condition of repentance. Well, Jesus followed on the heels of the ministry of John the Baptist with the very same message, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, in order to get into the kingdom, repentance is necessary. That's true nationally for Israel. It's true for every individual. The only way into the kingdom is through repentance, a saving faith repentance. But alas, the nation as a whole, as led by her religious leaders, refused to repent and recognize Jesus as the divine human Messiah that he was. Well, because of the kingdom offer uh, being rejected, uh, in effect, the king was rejected, the king of the kingdom being rejected, the kingdom offer was then put on hold, and the direction of Christ's ministry at that point became focused on the cross. The disciples had a hard time accepting the idea that Jesus was going to die. You understand why, right? I mean, how could Jesus be the Son of God and be overtaken and killed? How could Jesus be the Messiah and the kingdom not immediately be ushered in as expected? The disciples were confused. You say, well, that's easy. Well, yeah, you're looking back. And hindsight's a little better than looking forward. Uh, Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus followed that up with the fact that he was about to be killed and then rise again. Jesus spoke of his coming death, and yet at the same time gave Peter, James, and John a kingdom preview on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus said he was about to be betrayed and killed and then rise again. And then to prove his sonship slash lordship, 
He sent Peter to providentially secure the required temple tax from the mouth of a fish. What to make of it all? There's a lot of moving parts here. The disciples did not understand that in light of the nation of Israel's rejection of of the Christ, of Jesus as the Christ, the kingdom was no longer imminent. It was no longer at hand. Never after Christ is moving directly towards the cross, and that's the focus. Never again is the kingdom said to be at hand. No, no, no. Uh, That offer has now been withdrawn. It's put on hold. But they didn't understand that. They understood who Jesus was, and therefore they were still thinking the kingdom is at hand. I mean, Peter's great confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's go into the kingdom. I mean, that's who you are. That's where they were still at. You see, they did not rightly divide the cross and kingdom truth. Because at this point, they were still ignorant. They did not see the truth that the cross, because of the nation of Israel's rejection must come before the time of the kingdom. And it always had to be so in the sovereign plan of God because of the fulfillment of all the prophetic scriptures. But here's an important point. The true believers slash followers of Christ who are saved are already kingdom people in that we are headed for the kingdom eventually. We have our citizenship in the kingdom. I mean, our ticket is stamped, Mark, we're on our way to the kingdom. We really are. We're not there yet, but it is our destiny, and therefore we are to live accordingly as the kingdom people that we already are and that we ultimately will be. That's what Matthew 18 is about. It's about kingdom values and how we should then, as Christ people, live in view of our kingdom hope. And Paul is very consistent with this. We see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, or chapter 2 rather, uh, verse 11 and 12. As you know how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. And what was the charge? That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is our kingdom calling. We should live accordingly. accordingly. Now this emphasis is seen... In the opening verse of Matthew 18, 1, the issue is the kingdom. And who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? It's a kingdom perspective. Which is then further addressed by Christ and built on by Jesus Christ. Now in Matthew 18, we have the fourth of five great discourses in the book of Matthew. Uh, The Sermon on the Mount is the first one. Uh, Then the commissioning of the twelve, chapter 10. And then the parables of the kingdom. There's, there's a change in terms of the kingdom being offered as at hand to now being put on hold. That's what the parables in chapter 13 are all about. And now we have community instructions in chapter 18. You see, how we treat people, how we treat one another, how we treat the lost, even church discipline that enters in at the end of the chapter, all very important in terms of how we handle ourselves as God's kingdom people. And so that's where we are. Uh, Finally, there will be the Olivet Discourse related to end times in chapter 24 and chapter 25. The main theme of this fourth discourse in Matthew 18 is that of humility and the importance of it in the lives of true disciples. We could break it down like this. 
Humility is necessary for entrance into the kingdom. I mean, unless you're willing to humble yourself and accept Jesus Christ, you're never even going to get into the kingdom. Uh, There is a humbling that's involved in a saving faith commitment to Jesus Christ. Humility uh, determines greatness in the kingdom, is necessary in preventing offenses, necessary in applying correct church discipline, and necessary in forgiving brethren. The parallel passages to uh, Matthew 18, 1 through 6 that we are studying this morning are found in Mark 9, 33 through 50, and Luke 9, 46 through 50. By looking at the parallel passages, uh, we have the background to our study here in Matthew 18. And here's the background. Note what it says in Mark chapter 9, 33, 34. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? What are you guys arguing about? But they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. <laughs> little argument going on here. A bunch of kids. They were definitely still thinking about the kingdom and their position in the kingdom. They weren't thinking about the cross. No, no. They're thinking about the kingdom and their position in it. In fact, they've been arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Now, evidently breaking this awkward silence, the disciples then asked Jesus the question we have here in Matthew 18.1. And that's where we pick it up, Matthew 18.1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Even though it was awkward, they still really wanted to know the answer to the question about who is greatest in the kingdom. Mark 9.33 indicates this discourse was given in a house. And many surmise possibly it was Peter's house, but we don't know for sure. Matthew is written with Jews in mind. And Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven 32 times in this gospel, which is synonymous with the phrase kingdom of God. And the reason for this is because the Jews had an aversion to using the word or the name God, lest they inadvertently use it in vain. Uh, They took very seriously, Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. As I say, they took this so seriously, they didn't even want to use the name of God for fear they would speak it in vain somehow. Now, it is amazing how how many people that claim to be Christians have really very little concern about how they flippantly throw the name of God around. Uh, you see these posts uh, with, uh, like on Facebook or whatever, uh, OMG. I always wonder, who might that be? You know, somebody says, oh my God, oh, who, well, who, who is that? I mean, you're throwing him out there. Maybe I, could, I have the liberty to ask you about your God that you're talking about. Uh, but people do this. Christians, professing Christians, in frivolous ways, or speak the name of God glibly. The name of the Lord, the name of Jesus, using the sacred name of God often as just a filler word. Now, of course, you can use the name of the Lord in vain in various ways. You can do so as a cuss word. 
You know, people get mad. They start, they start using the name Buddha all the time. I don't know why they use the name Buddha. They don't do that, do they? I mean, they're asking God to damn things, and they're using the name of the Lord. Sometimes they just spurt out Jesus Christ. Why? I wonder, I wonder why they do that. Muhammad is rarely used. I never hear people use Dwight. I, I, just, don't, I just don't get it. So you can use it as a cuss word. You can do so flippantly. It's not really reverence. Or you can do it as a manner of life in that you are claiming to be a Christian. You claim Christ, but you live contrary to it. That's using the name of the Lord in vain. Lots of ways you can use the, the name of the Lord in vain. Well, the Jews during the intertestamental period, out of reverence for the word God, would substitute the word heaven. That's how they got around it. So instead of saying kingdom of God, they would say kingdom of heaven. And Matthew writing to Jews was sensitive to this scruple and thus largely accommodated this this thinking, this, this practice. So the sense is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are in reality interchangeable. In fact, Jesus himself used these terms in an interchangeable manner as we will see in Matthew 19, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You see, he, he uses them interchangeably. But both of these phrases refer to the kingdom rule of God through the Messiah on the earth, which will take place in the future at Christ's second coming when he literally sits on David's throne in Jerusalem and rules the world. Consistently, the kingdom of heaven has the messianic kingdom in view as prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. There's no change then in terms of kingdom between what is prophesied in the Old Testament, the messianic kingdom, and what we have in the New Testament. And it is still future. We're not in the kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom, even as we're citizens of heaven, but we're not in heaven yet, right? This isn't heaven, right? I'm just checking. No, no, we're not there yet. But we are citizens of heaven, just as we are citizens of the kingdom. But we're not there yet. Verse 2. So the issue on the table, the question on the table is, who is greatest in the kingdom? And verse 2, Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them. Time for an object lesson. We are not specifically told who this little child was. Some suggest that this may have... As they were perhaps assembled at Peter's house, this may have been his little child. But again, we don't know that. Others suggest it was maybe a a neighborhood child that was well known by Jesus. And Jesus knew the child and the child knew Jesus. We don't know. But one thing we do know is the Greek word pedion, translated child, little child, means just that. A very little child, often used in reference even to an infant. Perhaps the child was a toddler, just old enough to run to Jesus. In Mark 9.36, it says Jesus took this little child up into his arms. A little child like this had no rights according to the law. They had no respectable rank or recognized status. You see, a little child had no real position in society. No power, no wealth. They were, in effect, considered to be nobodies. Little people of insignificance yet at this point in their life. 
But Jesus says this to these disciples who are, who are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And their great concern is who's going to be the greatest. He says, you know, uh, let me bring this little child in as an object lesson. And he said, verse 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus spoke this with authority. The Greek word translated here as assuredly, in my New King James, is literally the Greek word amen. It strongly affirms what is being said. The New American Standard translated, translates it as truly. Now, Jesus backs up here and starts at the beginning. Let's back up. Instead of talking about who's greatest in the kingdom, let's talk about who's even going to go in to start with. Let's start at the beginning, at the point of conversion. Now, Jesus was not saying the disciples were not saved, but simply stating the reality that the truly saved are those who have experienced conversion, as he goes on to describe. Uh, we know that he considered them to be saved. Uh, John 6, 70, 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. Had everybody else fooled, but not Jesus. For it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So um, they were all saved, except for Judas. And uh, as disciples, they were saved, but they were undergoing a transition from an Old Testament faith to a New Testament faith. You see, this side of the cross, one cannot be saved apart from believing the gospel that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. But none of the disciples at this point understood the truth of the cross. Not yet at this point. They were disciples in process. And they would all eventually make that transition from an Old Testament faith to a New Testament faith, with the exception of Judas. As Jesus states, this conversion principle, it really, I think, amounted to a challenge for them to examine themselves and make sure they're in the faith. The way you guys are carrying on, you're not carrying on like kingdom people. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to the saints that he's writing to, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. If we're really saved, true converts, uh, then we should live accordingly. Which is the very point Christ, I think, was making with the disciples on this occasion. And the point Christ will drive home is that true converts are those who have been humbled before the truth of Christ. True converts are not self-made people all full of themselves like we ought to be a somebody and recognize as somebody. No, we, have, we are humbled people. We are God-made people who have no bragging rights whatsoever. We are simply trophies of grace who give all the glory to God. You see, in conversion, we're humbled down. And in conversion, we come to recognize we have no merit within ourselves. Who am I to put myself up? I'm a nobody. Just like the little children recognize as nobodies. Hey, we're in that status. We're, we're not self-made in our standing. We're not worthy. We're just a bunch of, we're just, let's make it very personal. I am just a nobody. Just like a little child with no recognized status. Who is totally dependent upon God to save me and change my status. Notice what he says there. He uses the word converted. Unless you are converted 
and become as little children. You will by no means enter the kingdom. You have to be converted. Uh, The word converted literally means turning. In salvation, there is a fundamental turning point away from sin and to the truth of God. It's not merely intellectual assent or mental acknowledgement, but also involves the heart, the will, in which a person submits to and aligns with the truth of God as found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Conversion marks a turning point. There's a change of direction. Now, in salvation, there are two great things that we need to know about. One, we need to know the truth of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done for us so that we might be saved. In short, Jesus is the God-man who died for all of our sins and rose again. This is the God side of things, if you will. It's all what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus has done it alone. Nobody else with him on the cross. He alone is Savior. He alone paid the price for our sin debt. That's what we call grace. We preach the gospel of grace. Unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. I don't work for it. It's the work of Jesus on the cross that alone is responsible for our salvation. But on the other hand, we also need to know that we have to respond with a saving faith commitment to receive the salvation. And it must be the right kind of faith. This is what Jesus here is illustrating. The issue is what constitutes the nature of a true saving faith. You see, in the the broad world of evangelicalism, everybody agrees we're saved by faith. Justification is by faith alone. What we don't all agree on is what is the nature of a true saving faith? What constitutes a right kind of faith? Lots of people really have a, have a formula that says any demon-like faith will save you. You know, just believe the facts and you've got a little fire insurance. No, that's a very shallow study. Jesus here is emphasizing that a true saving faith involves a turning to him in which we recognize that we are not self-made, self-important people. We come just like a little child, having no status before God, recognizing we are totally dependent upon him. Thus, Jesus challenged the disciples' prideful selfishness, taking them back to square one by making them evaluate the reality of their own conversion. Making them once again come back to the truth that we are not self-made people. When you're not acting like a Christian, by the way, it's good to be called out on it. And in the end, we are strengthened because of it, if indeed we are true Christians. The Christian life is a series of being humbled. We are humbled down in salvation. But then we have to be humbled down time and time and time again in the growth process. You see, we still have that flesh. And and so really, growing into Christ-likeness involves a series of being humbled all through life. In the book of Acts, conversion is consistently associated with repentance. Repentance means to have a change of mind. And when we truly have a God-oriented change of mind, it results in a turning point. This is what Peter told the Jews. 
Acts uh, 3.19, repent, therefore, and be converted. Change your mind and have a turning point that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is a package descriptive of the nature of true saving faith. And I think it's true saving faith. You can't take anything away from this, this package. It involves a change of mind called repentance. It involves a turning, conversion, and believing, accepting as true. And this is really a package. A true saving faith is a change of mind kind of faith that results in a turning point in the life. Conversion denotes a turning point from self-orientation to a God-orientation that affects how you see and treat others. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul said to the Thessalonians, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of injury we had to you, how you turned, there's a word, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Again, Jesus took the disciples back to basics, emphasizing that unless one has a humbling conversion experience, which is described as becoming little children, then one cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is using the little child as an example of humility. Jesus was not saying we need to be childish, but rather childlike in the sense of humbling ourselves. A little child is an illustration of humble dependency, not innocence. A little child has no claim to self-made worthiness or greatness. They have no means to meet their own needs. They are totally reliant upon their parents. This is how we come to the Lord in humble dependence upon Him. He is our all in all. We are not self-made, self-important people. Salvation is a humbling reality. The number one thing I think that probably keeps people out of heaven is their pride. It is the besetting sin of mankind, as it's often said. We think we can do it. We insist on our, insist on our own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I mean, that's what we do. We think we want it our way instead of God's way. We want to salvage something for self-dignity. We want to insist we have some form of worthiness within ourselves. While all of heaven is saying to Jesus, the Lamb of God, you are worthy. Jesus is the worthy one. In Habakkuk, we have this great statement concerning faith. Habakkuk 2.4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. That's one category. The proud. In the other category, we have the just shall live by his faith. They are those that have been humbled. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. By the way, that, that goes together. Uh, you know, if you think you're all that, you tend to look down on all those others that are not all that. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That goes together. And that's the emphasis we have here in, our, in Matthew 18 as well. But here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this, this terrible tax collector. I interjected terrible, but that's his mindset. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I mean, this guy's a good giver. I mean, let's face it. He's, he's a tither. You see, this Pharisee had an eye problem. You see that? I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He had an eye problem. 
It's full of himself. It was all about self-sufficiency and his religious pride. Jesus continued on in this parable. Verse 13, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, declared righteous, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, put down. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is where salvation starts. It starts with humbling oneself in recognition that I am no better than anyone else. We're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. I'm just a sinner in need of God's saving grace. By the way, God justifies the ungodly, according to Paul in Romans 4, 5. Unless one comes to have a change of mind where they see themselves as unworthy, resulting in a turning point in their life, they will not even enter the kingdom. They won't get in. Spurgeon said, while others are congratulating themselves, I have to sit humbly at the foot of the cross and marvel that I'm saved at all. Thus, Jesus emphasizes that a proud spirit is inconsistent with kingdom membership. We are born again in humility. We humble ourselves before God as being totally dependent upon him. We have no more status than a little child who had no status in that society. We humble ourselves before God as totally dependent upon This is the only way into the kingdom. And a saving faith is a humbling thing. Jesus in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, they acknowledge their, their spiritual bankruptcy. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who? The poor in spirit. I'm not coming to some, boy, I got something to offer. No, 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 I don't. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Only the humbled in conversion will enter the kingdom. And Jesus goes on to share that those who then live consistent in humility will be the greatest in the kingdom. Verse 4, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to be great in God's kingdom? Then become childlike in humility. Recognize that within yourself, you're really a nobody. No status. Jesus turns on its head all ideas of human greatness. A proud me first spirit won't get you there. That is the antithesis of kingdom greatness. In the kingdom, those in the position of greatness will be those who humble themselves like a little child. In Mark 9, Jesus attached humility to being the servant of all. Instead of thinking, I'm so great, somebody should serve me. A proper kingdom attitude thinks in terms of lowly service. It seeks to serve rather than to be served. That's humility. As Jim Elliott said, we as God's people are just a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. The word humbles literally means to make low. To make low. It is in lowering ourselves 
that God will ultimately exalt us in the kingdom. Humility is characterized by being the servant of all, which is the mark of kingdom greatness. You know, humble, lowly servants of God, they're the ones that are going to be great in the kingdom. Not the one who's saying, hey, recognize me. No. It is the one who most clearly demonstrates character in keeping with humility that is destined for greatness in the kingdom. D.A. Carson says, the child is held up as an ideal, not of innocence, purity, or faith, but of humility and unconcern for social status. That is the whole context. Jesus advocates humility of mind, not childishness of thought. Verse 5. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now, you have to understand that in this culture, as I've already really hammered, but you have to understand that in this culture, a child had no status of any respect. They were considered nobodies. They had no real significance or importance. Maybe someday they would get there, but not not at this point. Jesus is dealing with the essential importance of humility as a defining virtue in the lives of his followers. And if you truly have a spirit of humility, it affects how you treat other people. One of the defining traits of true humility is that it is willing to associate with the lowliest of Christ's followers, not put yourself above them. You know, it kind of sneaks in there, right? Kind of just, even without saying it, we kind of tend to think we're a little better than those people. (laughs) I haven't had, anyway, I don't want to get into extra stories. I get in trouble. But anyway, it's easy to happen. Have you ever been around people that thought they were too good for you? How did that make you feel? It endeared you to them, right? No, that's not Christ-like. At one point, the disciples sought to rebuke people for bringing their little children to Jesus, but Jesus, in effect, rebuked the disciples, saying, let the little children come to me. But this attitude of children being insignificant was really reflective of society at this point. Children didn't seem to really matter much. At this point, Jesus clearly is using the analogy of a specific little child to illustrate those who are true believers, true kingdom members, who are very precious to God. Verses 5 through 14 transition from discussing an actual little child to addressing childlike believers, whatever age they may be. Listen to this uh, statement from D.A. Carson. The one who welcomes a little child like this in my name is not welcoming little, literal children, but children defined in the previous verses, those who humble themselves to become like children. Jesus' true disciples in my name. Verse 5, the parallel clause, who believe in me. Verse 6, and the necessity of becoming childlike even to enter the kingdom all confirm the view that those referred to in verses 5 and 6 are simply Jesus' disciples. I think that's true. Since Christ's followers must become like little children, the child being used as an illustration represents a true disciple. The one who receives one such little child like this, that is a humble believer, immature believer, in effect receives Christ. To receive means to accept or welcome them. Christ totally identifies with the little and the humbled 
These are his people. To receive someone in Christ's name is to receive them because they belong to him. The verb the Lord uses here to receive means to accept into fellowship. True humility associates with God's humbled people. It doesn't think I'm above them or I'm too good for them or they really should be serving me. But rather, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. You see, kingdom greatness in humility treats the weakest person who belongs to Christ as somebody important, who has value and is to be respected, versus seeking to manipulate them for self-interest. You see, the whole issue is humility. Thus, Christ's teaching here served as a serious, serious correction. A correction of the mindset the disciples had as they were arguing over who was to be the greatest. You want to talk about greatness in the kingdom? Don't be arguing about who's the greatest, but who is willing to be the most humble? Here's what our attitude is to be, as we find by Paul, in terms of how we should then live. Uh, verse 6, Romans 12, 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. You know, if, well, I'm a high floater here. Yeah, come on down, back to earth. <laughs> uh, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. John MacArthur says the term receives is often used of welcoming honored guests and meeting their needs with special attention and kindness. Jesus' primary point here is that the way a person, believer or unbeliever, treats Christians is the way he treats Christ. When anyone welcomes with an open heart a Christian as an honored guest and friend, he welcomes Christ as his guest and friend. You see, a person really shows what they think of Jesus by how they treat his followers, including those considered the lowest class of believers. The smallest of the children. Okay, I hobnob with the important people in God's family, but those others, we're not having, not having them over. We're just a little above them. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. We really need to take a step back and, and, and listen to Jesus. If all a person wants to do is hobnob with the high and mighty important people, then they really don't know Jesus. Certainly they don't know him well. Verse 6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow. Christ is teaching that how a person treats his people these little ones who belong to him, is all important. Those who serve in humility, treat them well. Those full of pride, mistreat them. And that is most serious. The little ones here is clearly qualified as those who believe in me. So Christ is talking about humble believers who are considered insignificant. There is a direct connection in the flow of thought between convert and humble in verses 3 and 4, and the little ones who believe in Christ in verse 6. So in view here are true humble believers. On the positive side, those who receive them in Christ's name in effect receive Christ, which is indicative of true faith. On the negative side, those who cause them to stumble will suffer serious consequences, which is the warning. Remember, Christ is first and foremost here addressing his disciples and giving a stern lesson on humility. God warns even his own people about the seriousness of mistreating his humble people. 
One might seriously wonder whether those who do such a thing are even true believers, since a key identifying mark of true faith is love of the brethren. Still, believers also have the flesh and can do very ugly things to one another when they walk in the flesh, hence the sober warning. In the end, God makes the final call on everyone, but the warnings here are for all to be taken very seriously. Even believers are warned of the seriousness of leading a fellow believer astray. This is not something only an unbeliever can do. You see, in the middle of correcting the Corinthian church, which had all kinds of problems, Paul made this general statement, right? Pretty much out of the gate, chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God in context through worldly wisdom, the temple of God or the people of God, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? Better watch out. Bring in your earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom into the church. Integrate it with scripture. We can do more than just scripture. Watch out. God will destroy him. Very heavy and serious warning to the church. And there are others. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6. This is the will of God. You don't have to wonder about it. Say, I wonder what the will of God is. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, what sets you apart as, as God's people, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's the way they carry on. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Strong warning. How serious is it that the Lord becomes the avenger of a believer who spiritually abuses a fellow believer? Say, it's not that serious. I'm going to heaven. You might be going sooner than you think. The answer is it's very serious when it says the Lord is the avenger. The avenger means the executor of judgment. God's got the number of everyone who commits sin like this and warns of serious consequences. Note here, Jesus in Matthew 18, 6, applies this to whoever. To whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Again, MacArthur says, when a person mistreats a Christian, he mistreats Christ. This side of the truth applies to believers and unbelievers. Whether the person is the worst persecuting pagan who causes harm to a Christian or whether he is a believer who causes harm to a fellow Christian, the result is the same. Christ himself is attacked. It is possible for believers, especially immature little ones, to be led astray. But to be the cause of this is especially serious. The word causes is the Greek word skandalizo, which literally means to be a stumbling block or to cause to fall. This verb is used 13 times in Matthew. The sin in view here is that of being a stumbling block so as to cause spiritual harm. In context, being a stumbling block is set in contrast to receiving a child of faith. So it would seem to me in context here, the flow of the context, being a stumbling block in this case involves not welcoming them, 
rejecting them or ignoring them and treating them as insignificant. You know, kind of like little kids that are kept out of sight and out of mind and they don't matter. Such treatment causes them to stumble in their discipleship process. This is perhaps one of the greatest causes of stumbling. And yet one that is often not talked about. New or immature believers need to be affirmed, not lorded over. Professing Christians can often be insensitive, clicky, unaccepting, and unwelcoming. The sin of tribalism was so serious at Corinth that the very first thing Paul addressed after his introductory comments in the letter was the correction addressing this issue at Corinth, the lack of unity. This is a true story. As a young man, Mahat. Gandhi was seeking a better system than that found in Hinduism. In his search, he came to the conclusion that Christianity might provide a better way uh, for India in terms of the problems that India was dealing with. So one day, Gandhi went to a Christian church. At the entrance, he was confronted by, you know, a greeter. You know, those friendly people out front, right? And this greeter told him, sir, this church is only for Europeans. Gandhi walked away from the church, said, quote, if Christians have a different caste, have a caste Let me start over. If Christians have caste differences, I might as well remain a Hindu. And he did. The attitude he encountered there was a colossal stumbling block, which caused Gandhi to turn away from Christianity and dedicate himself to the spreading of Hinduism to India's millions. How different India's history might have played out if Christ-likeness had been on display, true humility had been on display that says, we're no better than anybody else. Now, it's terrible to treat an unbeliever in this way, but how very serious, perhaps even more serious, it is to treat a fellow believer with disdain. And the reason is because such rejection really signifies a rejection of Christ himself. No wonder Jesus spoke so sternly to the disciples. They needed a major attitude adjustment. They needed to humble down and not pridefully think about being served and their personal greatness in the kingdom. They need to think about others, which is the sign of true humility. This is the mindset of kingdom greatness. It would be better, he says, to have a millstone hung around the neck and drowned in the depth of the sea than to be a stumbling block for an immature Christian. The word millstone is literally donkey stone. It referred to a large wheel-shaped stone that would be placed on a stone pad. Grain was then poured on the pad and the donkey would pull the stone around, crushing the grain, making it suitable for the making of bread. Such a millstone could weigh hundreds of pounds. Such a large stone tied around a person's neck would guarantee that the person immediately sinks to the bottom of the sea, and that's it. Amen. Uh, Here's a picture. Oops. That's not a picture. That's a reference, which I don't have time for. (laughs) Here's a millstone. Hey, let's put that around your neck. Tie that on you. See how long you swim with that. You're going down. Christ's analogy is clear. It would be better to drown in such a horrific manner than to cause a young or immature believer to stumble by way of not properly receiving them in humility? That is a very stern illustration for sure. True humility thinks of others and is not self-serving. Paul says this is the mindset of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Have the mind of Christ, 
Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. It's most serious to be a stumbling block. It results in the spiritual injury of God's little ones, true believers. True humility doesn't elevate self, but rather seeks the spiritual good of others. A young seminarian spent several years in seminary. In his first sermon, as he came back home, back to his home church, he walked up boldly to the pulpit with his, held, with his head held high. My next line is kind of funny. But he stumbled in his presentation. <laughs> he lost his train of thought. Dejected with head down, he came down from the pulpit. And as he did so, an elder whispered to him, Son, if you had gone up to the pulpit as you came down from the pulpit, perhaps you would have come down from the pulpit as you went up. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Who is greatest in the kingdom? The most humble of all. God help us to be among them. Let's stand and have our closing song.